2: Here are your hosts, Headmaster Rebecca Hagstrom and co-host Mark Durkin. Well, good evening, and thank you for joining us here on Education Nation. I am your Headmaster and host, Rebecca Hagstrom, and it's a privilege to join you every Saturday evening here on AM 1280, The Patriot. And of course, I am joined in studio once again by the producer of Education Nation and my co-host, Mark Durkin.
1: Well, hello, Rebecca. It's nice to. Uh be in contact with you. I know you're uh, out of studio this evening, but we uh, have the wonderful technology of over the telephone, and we can still make this happen together.
2: I know. It's, such a, it's a wonderful gift, and I'm, I'm happy to do that. We are very busy here yes. at Liberty Classical Academy with our teacher workshops, and so I am calling in, and we're very grateful that that does work out, and grateful for our guests that we'll be introducing very soon as well. Well, back in April, the Twin Cities flagship facility for pediatric care, Children's Minnesota, opened a clinic for transgender and gender diverse young people. While this is the first of its type here in Minnesota, five former clinicians from England's Tavistock Center's Gender Identity Development Service now warn that in the future, they may ask, what were we thinking?
1: That's right, Rebecca. In fact, the recently resigned employees from England's Only Pediatric Gender Identity Clinic are sounding the alarm over the experimental treatments that are being performed on very vulnerable children. Our guest tonight says the Minnesota Department of Education, with the help of its transgender toolkit for public schools, is far from urging a cautious approach to atypical gender identities in youth. And she also says Minnesota educators and physicians should heed the Tavistock clinicians' warnings.
2: Mm. Well, here to break down and discuss these warnings is Catherine Kirsten, and Catherine is a writer, an attorney, a senior policy fellow, and founding director at the Center of the American Experiment, having also served as its chair from 1996 through 1998. She's also served as a Metro columnist for the Star Tribune from 2005 through 2008 before that was an opinion columnist for the paper for 17 years. She has researched and written extensively on the issues in the Edina Public School District, of which we've had her on very many times to talk about. And then she's also been a guest, as I mentioned, on Education Nation many times talking about other topics as well. So we are glad to welcome Catherine back to our studio once again. Thank you so much for joining us, Catherine. Well, it's a real pleasure to be with you. Yes, and you know, we have talked about other issues with you so many times, Catherine, but I think this is the first time we've talked about the transgender issue with you. Um, we have had other guests on talking about this topic, and um, it is really something rather new in our culture in the last three to five years or so, and, and especially just in the last couple of years. So, sure. um, we're really glad to be able to talk about this uh, because, as, as we stated earlier, um, we really aren't seeing anywhere in the country, much less in Minnesota. Uh, that people would be taking, um, a calm or, or simple approach. They're kind of diving right into this without thinking a lot about the consequences for kids. Right. Um, so since, since in April, um, the launch that happened in April, you wrote that the children's new gender clinic in Minneapolis is being portrayed as an unmitigated, unmitigated good. So what are yes. some of the main reasons why people would feel that way? Uh well uh, it's uh I, I think our whole society
3: is moving in the direction of a kind of radical individualism. Uh we're mm-hmm. increasingly um detached from the reality that underlies our human existence and we're talking about things as you would think difficult to deny as biological sex, uh, mm-hmm. but I think there's there's such a such a, a kind of focus on celebrating and affirming. Whatever quote identity hmm. uh, people of any age might choose for themselves, if they can they can create themselves from the whole cloth, and they can change hmm. uh, their identities at will. There are there are simply no standards rooted in reality. For understanding mm-hmm. what what we are as human beings anymore. And I think when you add to that mix uh, a lot of anxiety on the part of young people, confusion, family breakdown, mm-hmm. and intense involvement in social media, uh, you right. you understand better the, the tremendous confusion that many young people face today. Yes.
2: Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when they're being given this message that they can really become whoever they want to be, but the reality is... That's not necessarily true um, I think that actually ends up accentuating the anxiety that they feel and when you look at the research on these kids unfortunately even when they go through some of their changes yeah. they're still uh, marked by depression and anxiety and yes absolutely people aren't telling them the truth and that's the that's the bottom line. Well, as news broke that Children's Minnesota launched a clinic for transgender and gender diverse young people, five clinicians from England's only pediatric gender identity clinic had resigned, in which the Times of London reported that the resignations were over a matter of conscience. Can you explain some of the very disturbing practices that these clinicians acknowledge have been going on at this national clinic?
3: Yes, and and I should add that uh, it, it's not just these five. I've i I've read uh, that as many as 18 over the last few years of these clinicians in England, they have resigned for similar reasons. Um, they wow. are very concerned uh, and going public with this uh, about what they call experimental treatment mm-hmm. being done mm-hmm. on uh, very vulnerable children. And mm-hmm. what they are seeing is that, uh, the large majority of these children who come to them, and their numbers have just skyrocketed in the last few years, uh, have uh, mental health difficulties. They, they have uh, abuse in the family. Uh, they've got trauma of various kinds. All of this, mm-hmm. these clinicians say, is being overlooked. And one of the clinicians, in fact, said uh, that what Kept him at his job once he realized this was that he feared that these children were in danger from the, the very service itself, from the medical people who oh. were
2: supposed mm. to be
3: trying to help him. And he saw his role increasingly as protecting
2: them from the inside. Oh my oh. goodness. Can you believe that? Oh. When you stop and think about the, um, requirements and regulations that that are supposed to be around any type of experimental drug. Um, you know, you, you think about that and how that applies to cancer or um, other types of diseases. And yet, when it comes to this, it seems yes. like the sky's <laughs> the limit. There's no regulations. Yes, there isn't. And
3: all of these, these drugs are, are, are off license I believe the term is that if they are not none of them being are approved by the FDA oh. for the uses to which they're being put uh, on on you know, for for children I have a friend uh, who is getting experimental cancer treatment given his mm-hmm. condition he says it took three months for his this care to be approved for him. Well, this is all going on with no approval whatsoever right. from, I know. from and, the, and with human
2: subjects. You know, when you stop yeah. and think about that, the regulations even around animal research must look, these are these are human these are human subjects. These are human people. Um, it's really sad.
1: Mm. You know, according to the Radio Times, Catherine, you know, the England Clinic, and again it's called the Tavistock Center's gender identity development service uh, over a ten-year period, they saw a number of incoming referrals increasing. I mean, just to give you an example, forty a year in 2006, mm-hmm. but that had just skyrocketed to 1,400 in 2016. And, and you've it is, and you've written that in addition mm-hmm. to England, Minnesota is seeing the number of young people presenting with gender confusion is also skyrocketing. In your research, what does the current treatment of pediatric gender identity problems suggest? Oh,
3: what is it? suggest uh, well, it certainly suggests when you look when, when you consider that there is no uh, known um, way to to evaluate yes. uh, there are no standards. So what is mm-hmm. you know gender dysphoria that is um, mm-hmm. you know discomfort from being uncertain about you know supposedly your your gender identity. So so you have no no kind of medical ground. Or this diagnosis, then you have um, the kind of confusion on the part of young people that we uh, talked about. then you have the well known phenomenon of social contagion that is mm-hmm. uh, it, it this this has happened for you know, centuries with suicide, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It, the copycat notion. It, you yeah. know, all kinds of young people who don't, they're unhappy, they don't know why. Right. Then they go on Tumblr or on, online and they see uh, all of these uh, self-made videos or Uh, other videos uh, on the part of young people who now claim, wow, this solved my problems. Really, I'm I'm a boy with a girl's mind or whatever. Mm -hmm. They think, gee, maybe this is my problem. And uh, so it's that kind of social contagion in an atmosphere of tremendous uh, uh, anxiety and confusion on the part of our young people that's driving this increase, I
0: think.
1: Mm. Mm -hmm. And you were listening Mm -hmm. to Education Nation here on AM 1280, The Patriot, where uh, you're up Your co-host today, Mark Durkin, in studio, uh, remote, uh, joining us is both Rebecca Mm -hmm. Hagstrom, the headmaster of Liberty Classical Academy, and also Catherine Kirsten, who has been a regular guest on our program uh, to discuss a myriad of issues. And today we are talking about the rising concerns over pediatric gender clinics. You know, also, Mm -hmm. too, Catherine, several studies indicate that a high percentage of young girls identifying as transgender have pre-existing medical conditions. Now, we did talk a little bit about uh, some of the psychological problems, but according to the studies, what are some of the other medical conditions, and are they underlying their gender confusion?
3: Well, that's a very good question. There, there's uh, strong evidence that, uh, as you say, in recent studies, Uh, the the recent increase that has most come to people's attention is the increase in the number of girls reporting Mm -hmm. this condition. And uh, it seems that um, autism or or being on the autism spectrum on the part of girls uh, definitely is a risk factor here. Mm -hmm. These are young women who are already uncomfortable uh, in, uh, in in social settings in many cases and of course women tend to be uh, more more verbal about uh, uh, what's going on in their lives etc and this can make uh, young women who are on the autism spectrum, in, in particular, very uncomfortable and more and more thinking, gosh, the problem must be that I'm really a boy mm. and I don't mm. know it. So so there's that, there's ADHD, uh, a whole variety of problems, as Mark suggests. Mm, mm.
2: You know, the clinicians from the Tavistock uh, Um, clinic over in in England, they say that the medical personnel in England are under intense pressure to ignore these kinds of complex histories like what you're talking about here. So who's applying that kind of pressure to the medical personnel in the first place? And what are they promoting as a cure-all solution to the gender-confused youth?
3: Right. Well, what they say is that adult transgender activists and lobby groups, are very, uh, very much at the center of this. There's a group in England, in fact, there are a couple well-known transgender um, activist groups. One of them is called the Mermaids. And Mm. uh, according to the the Tavistock clinicians, these uh, adults are often in uh, the waiting room with the families uh, and they're a 10-year-old boy or girl. Uh, These these, uh, activists have connections with uh, some of the leadership of the Tavistock Center uh, go directly to them. Uh, you know, we see a similar kind of situation in in this country. And the, yeah. the tactic, mm-hmm. that this, let's say that the strategy that is used there and is used here as well is uh, to, to tell parents of a confused young person, if you're a transgender lobbyist, you say, you know, would you rather have uh, a dead daughter or a live son. And they, uh, they use oh, no. the notion of suicide. It's their <clears throat> one of their primary tools, and parents are terrified of the idea that their their child uh, is, is you know, likely to commit suicide uh, mm-hmm. as a result of of mm-hmm. this. So it's it's very difficult for. In fact, the Tavistock people say that um, that parents have have sometimes threatened them, the clinic staff, and said, you do this for
2: my son or daughter because they fear a potential suicide. Oh, well, and that's, you know, like that's a fallacy to say that it's really one or the other, that you either have a live boy or a dead girl, so, yeah, if you yeah, had a biological daughter, you know, as though there's no yeah. other pod- possibilities in between. But, um, yeah. you know, that's that's kind of a bullying tactic in a lot of ways. It's oh, really bad. Tremendous. No question. Yeah. Oh. Hmm. Um the physicians that um, were working over there, that they were, that have kind of been speaking out about this, they hesitate to give estrogen to postmenopausal women and testosterone to men because of the documented risks. So then, why are some of these doctors that are promoting this choosing to give these powerful hormones to young people?
3: Well, um, it, it's it's. I guess you could look at what happened to Dr. Uh, Kenneth Zucker in Canada, who until a few years ago was uh, probably the world's best known authority on Mm -hmm. uh, so-called gender dysphoria, this underlying psychological condition. He was literally driven out, lost his job, and his center in Canada was closed because he took... He generally took the watchful waiting approach uh, when mm-hmm. young people and families would come in to, to seek his help. Uh, as we know, there's a, a very strong chance that young people who, who proclaim this kind of confusion early on in adolescence, if they're allowed to go through uh, natural puberty, will become comfortable with their biological sex and that was what Dr. Right. Zucker uh used as as his approach the political pressure from these essentially radical activist groups was so great uh there and, and continues to be very great here hardly any doctors will speak publicly about the dangers of this so-called treatment because mm-hmm. they really do stand to see uh, problems in, in, with their
2: jobs if they, if they come out and speak. What Which they've is ridiculous speaking. because when you stop and think about the oath that they take as doctors to do what is in the best interest of the patient, they're, they're feeling political pressure. Yep. For their job's sake, mm-hmm. to not do what they know is in the best interest of their patient. So this poor doctor, did you say it was Dr. Zucker in Canada? Yeah. Is that his name? Yeah. 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 Here he's trying to be responsible, and instead, um, like you say, he gets driven out of his job for being responsible.
1: Yeah. And you can understand, sure. yep. too, you can understand why the pressure would be appointed to this doctor in Canada, and it is the political push, because here in the United States, yeah. medicalization of gender dysphoric youth begins as early as age 12 with puberty blockers and is followed mm. by cross-sex hormones with estrogen and testosterone by the age of 16. So as expected, you know Dr. Carl Hennigen from the Center of Evidence-based Medicine at the University of Oxford, in England, he confirms that these treatments are, quote, supported by low quality evidence or in many cases, no evidence at all, end mm. of quote. Right. So if you could, Catherine, take us through just the various descriptors of devastation to the human body on these young people that are being subject to both puberty blockers and then cross-sex hormones.
3: Right, and I should add that these these uh, drugs that are being used uh, in many cases are actually being administered at younger ages uh, than mm-hmm. you described, which which is you know basically when they would uh, sort of logically, if this was your goal, be started. But there are kids as young as eight who are receiving oh. these,
2: oh, my these goodness. Um, puberty uh, blockers,
3: which again are off license. They're not they're not approved for use. In blocking puberty, so what so what happens is that kids start to receive these puberty blockers before they go through puberty. That means that their bodies are um, everything is kind of put on hold. They they don't grow up. So the, Mm -hmm. the rationale is well, if they can be given extra years to kind of think this through or see if they continue to feel that they're in the wrong body. Uh, that it's, it's good to give them this extra time. But studies oh show my. that almost no kids who are put on these, because it means, you know, you're a 15-year-old girl, you still look like you're 10. You're a right. 15-year-old boy, you still look like you're 10 years old. I oh. mean, how, how healthy yes. is is that? Ex- but exchange one
2: problem for another. <laughs> oh, my gosh, exactly.
3: <laughs> but the puberty mm. blockers themselves, there are a number of people problems with those. Uh, during their use, they stunt growth and decrease bone density and, and uh, can have other problems as well. There's some evidence that there's an effect on brain development, et cetera. Uh, but if they are are used and immediately followed by these cross-sex hormones, uh, mm-hmm. this will almost certainly cause lifelong infertility. So you lose mm-hmm. your ability to, to reproduce if, if you are you know, you, you you follow this protocol, and mm-hmm. at the same time, uh, I mean, you think about it. Uh, postmenopausal women uh, can no longer be given estrogen, which is a, what their body normally, you know, produced uh, right. as a normal matter, and continues to produce. And you know, can't prescribe testosterone to to men uh, because of documented risks, but they are prescribed mm-hmm. these cross-sex hormones to to young people. Of the opposite sex, so there there are there's an increase in risk factors for developing cancers, diabetes, mm-hmm. blood clots, liver damage, stroke, heart attack. Uh, again, no no understanding of what the long term effect on a child's brain development will be. Mm-hmm. So uh, this plus there's there's lifelong dependence. If, you're, right. if you these start taking
2: this, mm-hmm. you're going to be
3: taking these the rest of your life, you're oh. going to be dependent right. on the
2: medical system.
3: Right. Yeah. Mm.
2: And once again, this is experimental. This has never been done before. And right. no. so there's no track record. There's no history to be able to point to. and And yet these... Physicians are helping these parents do this with their kids, and I just I can't imagine. I can see why at least eighteen clinicians have walked away from that and said we're basically experimenting on kids, mm-hmm. and I don't feel comfortable with this.
1: Right, and also I think yes. it's important to know, too that uh, Catherine, you're clear in citing research that uh, gender dysphoric youth are advised to undergo these treatments. However, that sixty to ninety percent will abstain and embrace their sex if supported yep. through natural puberty.
3: Correct. Mm-hmm. Correct. And bear in mind, this is they are being asked to make the, the decisions about this kind of thing at mm-hmm. an age when uh, brain development, as we know, uh, is, is far from complete mm-hmm. in adolescence. Okay. Um, states, many states, bar them from using a tanning bed or getting a tattoo. Certainly, from drinking alcohol oh, <laughs> at <yeah. laughs> these ages, and yet they they can go ahead and have a you know, have this kind of thing done to their bodies right. when they're in no position to give informed consent.
2: C- Do you impressive. know that as a as a school leader, uh, we even have to get permission from parents to give children cough drops? So imagine cough that! Drops. Wow. Yeah. Yes. yeah. yes, we have to get permission to give cough drops, and yet this can be done to children. And um, you're right. They. From a cognitive standpoint, they don't have the ability to really begin having the reasoning capability until they're teenagers. You know, mm-hmm. 11 i think eleven to 12 years old is when some of those reasoning skills really start to click in. But mm-hmm. um, yet they can do this at the age of eight. It's really stunning.
1: Well, let's take about the next four and a half minutes really to kind of tie in things with education on this mm-hmm. issue. When it comes to education here in Minnesota, the Department of Education is far from urging any type of cautious approach when it comes to gender identities in youth. What is the department's suggestion to young people when it comes to gender dysphoria? And what are some of the questions that the department asks high school students in the Minnesota Student Survey administered by mm-hmm. the state's Department of Education?
3: Well, the Department of Education is very much on board with this and uh, is bent on normalizing and presenting it this kind of you know, quote gender confusion um, to, to be a normal part of life. Uh, they're, they are, are teaching that to young people. And in uh, this last year's Minnesota student survey, which something like 85% of the ninth and 11th graders in the state of Minnesota are asked to fill out, uh, the survey asked these young kids to specify, and I'm quoting here, if they are transgender, gender queer, gender fluid non-binary, pansexual, trans-male, trans-female, or questioning. And then it goes on to ask them how others would describe them. Would others describe their, quote, appearance, style, and dress, or how they walk and talk as very or mostly feminine, equally feminine, masculine, or very or mostly masculine? So oh planting God, this is... idea as very legitimate in, uh... in young people's minds, you know, tax mm-hmm. dollars, our state authorities, Encouraging young mm. people in this kind of confusion—it's oh.
2: just—it really is appalling to me that um, that there are this many people that want to buy into this. When I, I have to believe that at their core they know that this is not helping kids, I just have to believe that i don't know how they can no, it's an
3: ideology way. you know it's 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 almost a quasi religious ideology is yes. particularly bizarre because as you remember um for for decades uh feminists were telling us that the, the notion of gender is socially constructed that there's no reality there's no real difference and right. and women mm-hmm. it's all societal expectations all of a sudden it's the opposite All of a sudden, Mm -hmm. um, if you like to wear pink fingernail polish or sparkly shoes, why, you, you must be a girl mind right. your mind. I mean, it,
2: just, it really is contrary, easy. isn't it? <laughs> oh, that's so true. Which way is which way do you want it people? that's That's a really good point, Katherine. Um, well, you were talking about the Minnesota Department of Education and in two thousand seventeen they actually approved the transgender toolkit. For distribution Mm -hmm. to all public schools in Minnesota and we have discussed this at length here on Education Nation with another guest, but for our listeners who haven't heard our discussions concerning the toolkit, can you please explain how the toolkit instructs schools and if schools and parents don't comply, what are some of the problems they could potentially face?
3: Well, uh, the toolkit says instruct schools to to treat what they're calling transgender and gender nonconforming students. They don't tell us what the difference is. I guess mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The, the schools must treat them as the quote gender, which is a word I hate. I mean, it really is biological sex, right?
1: Mm-hmm. But they right.
3: identify with. Uh, when they use locker rooms and bathrooms, uh, sports teams, participations, overnight accommodations on trips and dress codes, mm. pronoun use, school records, you must, and of course they can name themselves, and they have mm-hmm. to be uh, identified by the name that they choose. Uh, but the, the thing that is most concerning in this toolkit is that it, it definitely suggests that parents of kids who who face these challenges, um, if they are are, are not sufficiently supportive, again, according to WHO, quote, the student support team from the school should follow their protocol for reporting child neglect or harm. So essentially, you know, parents who say, wait, wait, uh, my child's depressed, my child's autistic. And no, don't don't do this. Don't go this direction. Uh, they can be they can find their family lives really uh, adversely impacted.
1: Oh, well Catherine, you know, thank I... you. Thank you so much. We're gonna to have to wrap this up unfortunately with just about twenty seconds left. Again, thank you to mm-hmm. both Catherine Kirsten and Rebecca Hagstrom joining us by telephone this evening. And uh, if you'd like to follow us on our podcast here at Education Nation, you can do so at ednationmn.org to listen to any previous episode we've recorded on the program. Until next Saturday night at 6 o'clock, have a great week, everybody.